0: Hello, Adam Greenfield here, host of the Great Communicators podcast series. And what you're about to hear is the full, unedited interview with one of the guests we spoke with. If you haven't listened to the fully produced episode yet, I definitely encourage you to do so before listening to this one. They're shorter in length and much more refined. You can find them all at gradx.mit.edu forward slash podcasts. The idea behind these longer, unedited conversations is to give you an opportunity to hear the entire talk, warts and all. This is not only a fun way to hear the full flow of the conversation, but it also emphasizes the importance of the points made in the shorter produced episodes, which, again, can be found at gradx.mit.edu forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the conversation.
1: So we're going to start with, uh, can you tell me your name and what you do here at MIT?
2: My name is Ted Gibson, and I am a professor in the Brain and Cognitive Science Department, and I'm a professor of cognitive science here at MIT.
1: Is there um, some things that you're working on? Um,
2: that... I, uh, I work on uh, human language, how people understand uh, produce and represent human language, and so I'm. I work on why language is the way it is. We're trying to look, looking at evolu- evolutionary models of why human language looks the way it is, and I, we. But we look at how language is today to try and get at that. So we look at many languages, corpuses, like some big texts of many many languages, to try and figure out why words look the way they do, why word. Order looks the way it does across as many languages as we can to try to make inferences about what is natural about human language. That's that's mostly what I do. I, I, I that's kind of half of what I do actually. The other half is I work on uh, work on uh, I work with uh, remote cultures uh, to try to also to try to understand language and cognition cognition more broadly. Because if you want to, so. Telling you too much here. But I, I, what I'm interested in is why human language, why human cognition looks the way it does. And if you only look at industrialized nations, industrialized cultures, industrialized languages, then you may be missing out on uh, a huge portion of what, uh, what cognition is, what language is, it, um, by, because humans are such adaptive learners that we pick up whatever is useful in, any, in anyone else's culture. And so it could be that language, or number cognition, or uh, use of color words, or something like that, like that, is picked up from interacting with some other group, as opposed to being some part of innate human cognition. And so it's, you need to look at a very broad range of of uh, of human um, I don't know, uh, of of the way that people live. <laughs> and and so we I work with tribes in the Amazon to try to look at sort of the remo- some of the remotest uh, uh, human tribes to figure out what's innately part of human in, uh, intelligence and what is learned from other groups. And So that's another big part of what I do is working with remote groups. That sounds really big. Yeah. <laughs> like it sounds like a really big task. It's a huge task but uh, I mean I'm not going to solve it. I mean, all we can do is do our little pieces, you know. And so, if I want to, I want to know why human language looks the way it does. And so, I need to do more than just look at texts of um, texts of industrialized languages. I'm going to have to. Anyone who wants to do this seriously is going to have to look at a broader range of the way human languages are. And so, I have to look at at least a few. Uh, and, and then maybe other and people. Lots of other people will be working in others, and we can collaboratively try and answer these questions so my group and I we do some small part of that and uh, and you know yes yes I can't solve this problem (laughs) you're right
1: (laughs) Um, well no it's interesting because I feel like uh, that ties really into what the course is about I mean you're studying on some level you're studying communication but uh, language is about communication right Um, I would assume Um, but uh, what I'm wondering I have two questions I'll start with what are some things you've found that you've found interesting um, about the work? Like, um,
2: what's exciting you right now about the work? Well, it's kind of funny that you mentioned that um, that you think it's kind of obvious that human language might be about communication, and um, I agree, and and many people agree. But in fact, that's not the default assumption in in much in much literature. They Uh, I don't know if you want to know this stuff, but so so Noam Chomsky, his his default assumption is a very different assumption that he thinks language is not evolved for communicative purposes, but it's evolved for complex thought, which you might and which is actually kind of hard to uh, empirically test. It's kind of difficult to know what the evaluation would be such that complex thought would be the reason that human language might exist. Alter, you know, the, the sort of most obvious view is the view that you're raising is what when, when we think is most plausible in some sense is that, that human language might be evolved for communicative purposes. And so then what I find, I find that hypothesis really exciting. And so we look at dictionaries, so lexicons of as many languages as we can, and we look to see how words change over time. And it looks like words get smaller when they, when they become more predictable in context, they get smaller, which is kind of what communication-based ideas about language would expect. And then more interest, even maybe more interestingly, I, I find that interesting on its own, but I also find you know, the structure of language as opposed to just the words themselves, but how the words get put together. Uh, for instance, the order of the words. though That I find absolutely fascinating, the idea that it might be, there might be langu- languages might, might evolve for easier communication in some ways. And so it's, it may be that some word orders are actually more efficient for uh, for being robust to uh, communication. So a problem with communication all the time is I need to say something as a speaker. When I'm trying to get an idea across to you, I want to say something that is most likely to get to you. So there's I'm worried about noise about you, noise at all kinds of levels of the way I might produce, the way you might understand, there might be background ambient noise of just sort of just sound noise. I need to say something to optimize the probability that you're going to get the meaning that I want you to get. And it turns out that some word orders are more robust to noise. Just a, 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 an agent verb patient word order is more robust to noise than an agent Patient verb word order. So English has an agent verb patient subject verb object word order. We say the boy kicks the ball, but a, but a, uh, a Japanese or Korean or Turkish or Hindi have a a verb final or SOV word order, and and it's very interesting to see how so they would say boy ball kicks. That's the default way to say the word order. Ignore like, of course, the words are all different, but this is just the order, and uh, it looks like the SVO word order is more uh, resistant to noise. The S O V word order; these other languages uh, many. Of, it turns out those are the two most common word orders across the world's languages. And uh, it may be that the S V O is more uh, um, resistant to noise; it's more robust for communication purposes. Uh, and and so that I'm interested in like, for instance, these S O V word orders tend to have endings on on words to make them possibly more robust as as robust as they can. So in English we don't ever. Um, when I say that the boy kicks the ball, I say the boy, or I say maybe I say the boy kisses the girl. Okay, I say the boy and the girl the same way. If it's the boy kisses the girl or the girl kisses the boy, in many languages there's something called case marking, which is an ending on the word. So in Japanese, you say boy ga, which means agent, uh, uh, girl o, patient. I mean, I actually don't know the words for girl and boy, but those are the endings that you say to let, you, let the, the the hearer know who is the agent and who's the patient, who's the actor, and who's the one receiving the action. And, and you find this across all the world's languages. Wherever there's a verb final word order, you always have this extra case marking, this ending. And when you have a verb medial like English, you often don't, suggesting part of this. So this an idea is that this um, this case marking is just like extra information to make that word order more robust to getting that information across. Anyway, so I'm interested in why languages have those word orders, and and maybe they might be more more and less robust to communicative purposes.
1: Do you think they change? Their robustness changes at all within the context? Like like I'm thinking of like, I mean, within this course, we're talking about things like public speaking, mm-hmm. and um, we've actually done a, quite a bit of interviews around yeah. people who've been saying, "Well, this this kind of thing." tends to work in a public speaking context. But I, it just strikes me that there's actually, like, a um, your, I might be wrong, but the way you're looking at the language is a little bit, is granular, but, or, or not granular, but, like, a, I just wonder if there's a contextual difference. Like, when, when, if you were having a conversation like we are, where I'm interviewing you one-on-one with the language, have different effect than if I was in front of a group of a hundred people? or
2: Yeah. I mean, I think people talk to who they think their audience is, right? So I will talk to you based on what I think you know, and I will talk to an audience based on what I... I mean, if I have a good audience design, Capabilities and people will vary greatly on that. So depending on what I think my audience knows, I I will say different things. And so there's like a lot of research on this. Is that I mean we actually don't know how people vary on this, how different individuals vary, but there there is definitely better ways to talk to people depending on what they know, right? So depending on what the common ground is, and if I understand what our common ground is then I will describe things at a very different level, depending on what I think my audience knows, right? If I think they know all kinds of uh, math about, say, communication theory, sort of information theory. This guy, Claude Shannon, worked out this, all this stuff. And if I think they know that, then I'll just start talking with technical terms like surprisal and entropy. And if I don't, then I can explain all those. I will have to work through what the details of those things are, right, and explain. And I, I would tend to do that anyway because I, in, in any audience sort of situation, because I sort of think it's important to bring as many people in as you can. Uh, there's always the danger that if you have any audience, there's always a danger that many, that some people don't know the things you may assume they know. And so that's a public speaking question, right? So when you're doing a public speaking, I think it's safer to give broader talks than uh, than assume a lot of background knowledge. That's just a but different people do different things in that so some people i guess maybe they know their audience more than than i might you know.
1: sure no i think it's it this actually came up when we talked to another uh yang shaohorn was talking to us about audience and in and, and developing communication to audience and one of the things she was talking about was uh i said who's the audience for your work and she's like well i don't i i do my work for the scientific method uh you know and then i was like well that's interesting so like there's communication that's being used in the published paper and then she has to retool yes. that for her classroom when she's teaching her students and then she has to retool that uh, also through uh, to large audiences when she's speaking and i'm just i I'm, my my brain's lighting up about like how that ends up happening you know like what what do you keep and what do you take away for those different audiences and does that change what is understood
2: you know that's a very difficult question is to I think that's a hard question the question of what where you start and what you present to to the audience is difficult I have a personal way of doing that where I like to start almost from basics all the time almost no matter what and work my way up in case there are people in the audience that don't have the math they're supposed to have in that class that I'm teaching. Because it's not that hard to go through those background steps. It doesn't take very long, it doesn't bore, it shouldn't bore the rest of the audience. And so I have a, that's my personal style, is to tend to, but maybe, maybe to, to depending on who what the material is, if there's so much math that that's impossible, you know, that you can't start from square one and just teach people algebra, you know, linear algebra or something. from, So you have to make some assumptions, I guess. And uh, for mine, for the work that I do, the math isn't that hard that I, I can do, I can sort of give the equations and explain all of those in, any, in, in, in some detail to anyone, I think. And think so that anyone can get a, at least a flavor, and I know that it's you know people have trouble, different people have more and less trouble with um, dealing with with math. you know and so uh, the, just just being familiar with the notation, basically, I think that's a lot of it, is knowing what that no, a lot of the notation is. It's, it's confusing to some people. And so um, I try to work that through initially. So I tried I give lectures to you know undergraduates. Uh, i guess that's and then sort of general audience talks and then graduate classes and there those are really very different groups each one of them but i always start with the same stuff and and at the very the at the basics and then work out to uh depending on what the what the class is and how much time we're taking uh of course we get into a, a much more technical detail if there's a lot of if there's a lot of time but with you know an hour an hour lecture of course you can't you can't give that much of of the technical detail other than describing what the formulas are and what they mean. Yeah, yeah, that's it's yeah. really interesting because there's got to be some sort of like a, a balance, right?
1: Like you can't spend the entire talk for an hour long lecture explaining the thing that you're about to talk about. No. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. 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 There yeah. has to be like how do I yeah. get to what I'm talking about, but also establish trust and understanding with yeah. my audience so that when they get there, they understand what I'm saying. Yeah. Um well, let's back up for a little bit. Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was how did you get, uh, how did you find <clears throat> this work, and what drew you to it?
2: You know, it's um, probably everyone has interesting stories about that. And my my, I don't know how interesting my story is. It's kind of accidental, I think, and maybe that's how many people's stories go. But I was interested in math and computer science all the time growing, so that's what I did in. Basically in school in high school and I, I double majored in computer science and math and I ran into these problems of uh, trying to understand how human language works, how we process and understand language in it in a artificial intelligence class in my undergraduate computer science in an undergraduate computer science class and so I just liked that it seemed to fit it, a, a, it seemed like there's a lot of work that people needed to do there. It wasn't well done at that point uh you know people are progressing why very fast over the last 20 years a lot of stuff has happened but then it was there was so much to be done and i really liked the idea of working on language from a formal uh computational way and so i just started i took a i took one class in that and then i decided to do a master's degree and once i done had done the master's degree then the phd opened up and i just kept doing this and there was always lots of opportunities, and there still are, you know, so I mean, so all from my students graduating, I mean, language has been sort of, especially computational approaches to how language is structured, is there's a lot of opportunity there to try to understand that, so people want to, all of our information, anything we know is out there on the internet in human language, you know, that's how it's, that's how we communicate, so if you want to get access to that information, there's like a lot of applied reasons to, Want to understand language, human language. I mean, say you want to do translation—that's an obvious application. And so there's just so many things with that this has uh, led to. I mean, I don't—I just work on why language looks the way it does and how we understand and produce it, as you know, as we're like I'm doing right now. How it is I'm producing sentences and how it is that whoever is listening to this understands what I'm saying. <laughs> that's just a fun problem, right? That's a really interesting question seems so intuitively simple and obvious, and it's really hard.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, yeah. it is very apparent. I, was, I said to Adam <laughs> yesterday, I was like, hey, yeah. check this out. And I, you know, the predictive text on my little, um, my phone, and I yeah. just click the center button like over yeah. and over and over yeah. again. Yeah. And I, like what's shocking to me is, uh, I'm not calling Google out or anything, but like yeah. it's just really funny to me because it won't produce a sentence. It just keeps going on and on and on. It just does this like insanely long run on sentence. And that's Google's predictive text on on the thing. And I just know that there's a lot of people trying to figure out basically what you're talking about on a computational level because, um, you know, these uh, Siri and and all the different devices that are trying to help people get to where they need to be um, in an automated fashion.
2: Yeah, well, it doesn't have a message, right? So you have a message. You have something that you want to say, and so you've got a way that you've got to frame it, right? So it's doing a different task, which is what is the preceding sequence that I've heard of words, and all I'm going to do is try and guess the the next two or three words, right? And so that's just, it's called n-gram predictability. So it's just like from a couple of words, can I guess what the next word is or or the word after that, which is very different from, I've got a meaning that I want to convey. Like, a, like I've got an idea that I'm trying to get across to you. We're not doing that based on uh, just a, a sequence of words. There's, there's a structure to those words. And so that's, you can't do that with um, such little context. <laughs> I guess we're still a ways off before it has a good idea of what you mean, you know, and then makes guesses about how you might say that. That's, that's hard. That's that's kind of what I want to do, I guess we want to do, but that's really hard so it's doing some trick, right It's trying to just look at huge corpuses of text, just giant and then from all of those average texts from the last two or three words, all of those averages you just said two or three words, it can make a guess about what the next one might be. that's what it's doing, and that's not it's it's pretty good, right It'll often get the next word, but then after that uh there's gonna be a low prob. you know it'll just keep you know it can't. It's, as you said, it's not going to guess a sentence, right? It's just going to guess sequences of these these windows of three and four words, and that never turns into a sentence.
1: <laughs> That's it's really interesting. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I I'm fat. I equally, I'm fascinated with. I'm well, not equally. I'm not studying yeah, yeah. or doing research on it. <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, I, I think this is part of the central problem of like communication. Is like there's this, um, and there's some through lines through the different uh interviews we've done very different departments all around here and uh different faculty and you know one of them that's really big has been this like adaptability um in the context of of trying to do it like uh you know sometimes you plan a talk um and then in the middle of it you're like this is not working and you have to like re that that moment of scrambling to reframe something it seems that communication people who are good at communication can do that and i'm i'm interested in what you would think that Mm -hmm. would come
2: from i don't know there's like i mean that just seems to me if someone's good at doing that that seems like someone who is um likes to perform and is a good actor in a way you know someone who can who likes to be up on stage and can perform and that's just hugely individually variable. I, I I'm not like that. And so I would not be able to do that. Under the, the the situation you described of when a talk isn't going well and it's clear that people don't understand uh that's a very hard thing to recover from. I for me maybe different people have so I my my approach to giving good talks is to over prepare. Is to pre- so I'm not a very natural performer I don't think. I think mostly what I do is just prepare and prepare and prepare and so have things. I've had students who like to, who actually memorize whole giant spiels of what they're going to say. I don't do that. I I work from, but I work from, I do practice things over and over again. I, I kind of just don't like it when people are reading to me, which is what it feels like when something is completely prepared. And so I don't like it. And so I prefer to work from a message and just keep rewording it over and over again and keep so to myself. I will just practice it in a hotel room or wherever I am. I'll practice a talk over and over and over again until it's really easy for me to produce those ideas. Even though the the particular sentences I use each time may be different, and so I I'm not good under that situation you're describing. When things aren't going well, um, I don't know what to do. <laughs> I I'm someone who needs to practice things an awful lot to give a good talk. It it gives it looks like when i'm giving a good when i'm giving a good talk it looks like i'm i'm very natural and i'm really not it's just all practice it's just tons and tons of practice of doing these things if if i i have done it the other way without practicing and it's awful it's just awful it's like you know I, and so i don't uh i can't do that i know some people can i i definitely have and i just you know i i think they're great <laughs> but i'm not one of them i can't do that
0: when you practice
2: do you practice yeah. out- Yes. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Yes. So I I prepare when I prepare I speak as much of it out loud. Actually, all of it out loud. Everything is out loud. And so I go through it. And I know where when I do that, then I find where my problem areas are very easily. It's very he- easy for me to know when it's it's not going well. And but it's it's amazing how much better it is the second time after how bad it was the first time, when you tried really hard to find those words which didn't really work. The second time, it would be much, much better. And then the third, By at some point, it's smooth, and then I won't do it again. It's, but it, it has this impre- you get this impression that it's very natural for me, and it really isn't. It's just all, you just don't see behind the scenes. It's like not at all natural. It's hard. It's, I find it, well, it's not actually hard. It's just time consuming. <laughs> it takes up a lot of time. and so
0: I, I do poetry recitals. Yeah. Uh-huh notice there's a big difference when I practice it in my head and uh-huh. when I practice it out loud. Yes. In my head, it sounds yes. like, that sounds great. That's right. And the first time I say it out loud, I'm like, well, maybe that did not sound as great as huh. I wanted it to. So, huh. I'm just curious if there's yeah. a, where that comes from and why that is saying it out loud. I don't loud. know.
2: I don't know, but it's true that I it, it, I, I don't even know what it means to say something in my head, in fact, because I don't think it's... don't I. I I think it doesn't really work. I mean, it's very different from saying something out loud for real. You know, when I mean, I mean, for real, it's like it doesn't seem even real even when I say it in my head. I can fool myself if I have fooled myself, and it doesn't go well when I don't say things out loud and really practice everything. And so I think people are very different on this. And so that's what I, when I teach my students, I teach a class on. Um, it's a lab class, but a big part of the lab class is they have to. Um, you know, do do a couple of experiments, and then they have to present their proposals orally. They have to present their uh, first set of results orally, and they have to present their final projects orally. And I say, you know, you you can write it all out. I have students who write everything out on their PowerPoint. Uh, you know, there's like a presenter view, and you can just write everything down there. And and if you if you want to read it. Um, Read it so that I don't know you're reading it. So do it enough times so that I don't notice that. Uh, and and maybe, probably what generally happens when you've written it out, if you really want to write it all out, is that you get so much... It's so practiced that you don't have to read it at all. Because you if you spent the time writing it out, then you learn it so well that you don't have to. And so, But, I mean, people vary, right? So you know, this this question about, you know, can someone... What happens when something goes wrong? I don't really have good advice there. <laughs> it's like try not to show you're panicking. is <laughs> <It's> my best. <laughs> and... No, I think
1: I think it's a valuable. I think what you're saying is valuable because we have talked to people, a couple people, that really adhere to that kind of thinking. But I would assume that that's not every student who's going to be going be a grad student here. I'm I'm guessing there's a a good deal of grad students at MIT who probably, like it's good to hear somebody else who has d- done a lot of talks be like, that's not how I give a talk because having multiple ways of like approaching that problem is good. And if you can be a person who can recover in the middle of a thing yeah. and that's okay with you, yeah. that's okay. But it, if if it's interesting to hear this method, um, the refinement method that you're talking about, because that's also come up like this this idea of you know, when you read something that and it sounds perfect, it's like you it reads perfect, and it it seems like it was the first draft of that. Um, it's usually gone through like tons and tons of revisions before yeah. you it's gotten there. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Uh, so my question, sorry, uh, my question, uh, coming from that is, what have you noticed, um, with, you know, that course where they're giving the what is the most common thing that that the students are struggling with when they when they start trying to interact with taking that research they're doing and presenting it.
2: I think the hardest thing for students who don't have experience with public speaking is understanding how much they know about their topic and how they shouldn't assume that we know that the audience knows that and so the biggest problem i think people have is understanding how little the audience knows about the things that they know and that you have to give a lot of background introduction they assume that the inductor, the material anything that i know everyone else must know and they just start to go into details about the thing the, the technical details of things they've done and that's a mistake and so they you know people i think don't understand how much they know and how when you're working on a particular project not everyone else is also working on that project and so you have to give that background and uh, that's it's very important in any I think in any walk of life uh, that anyone coming out of somewhere like MIT is going to be they're going to have to explain what they're doing to people who aren't doing that and so you have to give a lot of background and so that's the biggest thing I think they, they don't they don't do well with introductory material uh, for their topics in, initially um, I warn them about that <laughs> because I know that's what they do, but they still have that that's still I think the hardest thing is is what is the background you know i have, I guess I have the same problem I think everyone has this problem, and any anytime you work on something a lot, you have this mistaken assumption that people you're talking with may also have that same experience in that same area, and of course you have to explain that you may not you may have to explain that to them also
1: do you have any techniques or tactics? That you tell them, or I mean, you talked about how saying it out loud for yourself, but like yeah. like have you seen other things work for the students that uh you've 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 said, you know, try this out if anything comes to mind
2: um, no, so the question is whether i whether there are other techniques of getting people to give good talks other than practicing a lot and i i, I from I actually don't. I don't know of any other specific technique. So my my observation is that there's people on a huge spectrum for from being very social and loquacious, and so who can give. It's not very hard for them to talk, and then people who aren't. That's kind of two extremes, and the ones that aren't need the most work at uh, being comfortable speaking. You know, just being comfortable. But but all they have to. I mean, I don't know. I because uh, I. I actually find myself in that camp i 'm very quiet in uh in the context of a talk when someone is giving a talk. I rarely ask questions I rarely interact for example and so uh but if i'm i but i do i i say i just i i just tell them to practice and and work on so i don 't really have any other uh, deep insights on that no <laughs> no
1: that 's fine um i was I was even going to... Yeah. I was wondering if you had any um Well, when I was first learning to teach and give lectures Mm -hmm. and stuff, I uh, started watching lectures that I was impressed by, like ones that could, um, and that helped me. And I was wondering if if that informed, like looking at exemplars for you informs any way of like how you construct a presentation
2: personally. I mean,
1: I don't know if that does, but.
2: I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does that watching other people talk um, gives me ideas about how I would like to present myself also. But I think there's just a lot of, each person has their own personality. And so uh, I I like talks where you understand someone's personality. You get not only the material, but you get a sense of who they are somehow or other. And so. So, to that extent, it's like not very helpful for me to try and copy someone else's presentation style because I have a different personality from them, and, and I think it's best when it's uh, when a, when a presentation is kind of true to that person somehow or other, and i'm I'm just different from other people, and I have a certain style where I do I like a little bit of humor, and some people don't, and so I do like uh, you know language that's my my research topic. You know, lends itself to allowing humor to uh, uh, get into almost any area because the topic area is language. Language is there's lots of you know examples of language which are funny in various ways, and so I I try to bring that in. But many people that doesn't work, so some people just don't like to say things which are funny or it's too awkward. I've I've been told by um, faculty members, advisors here, mentors in my department that you should never have any humor in your technical presentations it's like but so this is like a different presentation style and then i just ignore that and then, because i think it's it should be not only you know you should learn but not, it doesn't hurt if there's something funny which might in which might motivate you in some way rather to remember things in some better way but that's you know that's my own personal style and i wouldn't recommend i i have tried that and other people say well maybe you should insert a joke here and so this kind of thing from a student of mine i remember i did this ages ago and it really didn't work for him and and uh and so he it fell really i was at his talk when he did this and it fell really flat and he didn't know what to do when when people didn't laugh at this joke which was planted and uh and i I thought it was pretty funny later, but I was like I was basically trying to get him to do something that I would do, which would probably work for me. And it just didn't work for him somehow. And so uh, I, I realized I shouldn't be advising people on that level of how to do the talk. They should do what feels most natural for them. You know, the material has to be there, it has to be super practiced, but the but the way you do it has to be what's 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 easiest for you, I think. And it's hard to like I, I mean, that's what I—that—that's that, worked for me. I can't say there's a right, right answer to that question.
1: No, I—I I really actually appreciate that because I think I think that uh, what you're hitting on, and what I was interested in what you just said, is that there's this, like this personality. It reminds me, um, I practiced aikido for for a while, and one of the principles in that martial art is no two people will ever practice that art the same way, um, and uh, there's a way that you need to understand your body in the beginning you're doing very standard moves Uh but slowly you're supposed to learn your own body and to become a master you have to be able to use your own body in that that form Mm -hmm. the way it's meant to be used Mm -hmm. and not the way other people use would uh do aikido because your aikido is going to be very different um i'm wondering though how did you figure out what yours was was
2: it just through doing it over and over again trying things or or how do i figure out what my personal style for giving a talk is i mean that's just who i am so i sort of think that my personality in normal life is not very different from my personality in giving a talk i think that's the easiest thing for me and i um i i think it works well if it's the most i'm trying to get this word what is the word that they're always using today to describe like a candidate who's running for president has to be uh you know this word what is the word i yeah. I don't know don't, that they, they have to be true to themselves what's the what's the good word for that when you have to be oh, there's like a standard word I'm just getting old and I have trouble with no, like, okay. access <laughs> yeah is, yeah, what, yeah is I do too. what is it you you know there's a word that you guys know everyone is a very common word it's not an infrequent word where people have to be uh it's like yeah, I want to look it up. <laughs> True to yourself. What is that? What is that? You, you know, like, ugh, you guys are going to kick yourself when I <laughs> like, like how stupid it is that um, I can't remember this word. Solid
1: uh truthiness. True to yourself.
2: <laughs> truthiness. Yeah. That's the Stephen word.
1: Colbert word. His truthiness factor is off the charts. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, reliable? No.
0: No. Is it mostly in politics?
2: No, 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 no. It's yeah, yeah. I'm just like having. I'm not getting the right. Like it doesn't help. True to yourself, it doesn't help here. No, he always... just gets me all this junk <laughs> no, on the internet. I'm not getting what I want here. You're gonna think of it later. And and then no, you're, you're and you're. And... It's not interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very high It's a high frequency word, and I'm not giving the right. No, word. no, no. It's totally okay, okay. So where where was I? Um, so was we like, were just
1: talking about how you figured it out for oh, yourself. Oh yeah. So
2: I just yeah. How did I figure out how? I should give presentations, how I should talk in public speaking forums. And I I think it's just, I want to be able to give presentations with using my own personality. And so that's like, yeah, that's what I do. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's easiest. I think that's probably going to be easiest for everyone is to do what's natural for them and I.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, What was I thinking of? Uh, I was listening to you. It always stinks when you're interviewing and you're like, I should have written down. I do have them all written down, but like we, but one of the things I was thinking of was um, how did you find yourself naturally bringing that presence from the first time you presented? Or was it something that, I mean, were you really nervous the first time you presented? I mean, I don't know if you remember the first time you presented, but like, what was that? How did that teach you about yourself? how did that process like come
2: for you so i i um went to graduate school at carnegie mellon in pittsburgh and i did i was in computational linguistics which was joint in computer science and linguistics basically there and many fields in my experience back then anyway didn't have training in uh presentations and so it was just like go out there and do it you know that was i had an advisor who didn't who gave me zero absolutely zero advice about how to give a talk absolutely no advice and so i went up there with uh, pr- back then it was a time for um overhead transparencies that was what we were using and i i made a bunch of overhead transparencies describing this particular topic i was working on which was about how to uh understand human language it was a computational algorithm to do some, some uh, to do some human language processing, and I made these slides which were unreadable. <laughs> they were twelve or ten point font in these slide uh, on these trend, uh, transparencies, and I put them. And I realized I put them up there that I could barely read them. And there's all these people. It's like so much text in this tiny font, and I hadn't practiced. I just tried to work it through, and it was it was awful. And so I learned from the very strong negative feedback that I got from myself, not from other people. Other people uh, weren't so negative, but I thought it was just terrible. And I think it was just a sort of a property of the field and these fields where this guy who was my advisor was, I guess, he was actually a pretty natural speaker. He was pretty good and I guess I don't think he really had to work on being, giving presentations. He could just sort of stand up and knew something and just talk about it. And I wasn't like this at all. Um, and and he also came from another orient, another field where people read stuff. Philosophy, they would literally bring up a paper and just read it to you. You'd they would sit down and read, which I just found incredibly un- unpleasant. I mean, I can read a book myself or read a paper. I don't know what I'm, why is that person there. I mean, I, I want someone to explain to me in uh, in a conversational way, I guess, so I can learn things. And in the computer science side, there's also less motivation a lot to, there was no, not a real need to be really great at communication because the the jobs that people, there are so many jobs, it's so easy to get hired and you're not really getting hired for your communication skills and that and so I, I really wanted to be good at this and there was no one training us and so I mostly learned from watching myself fail terribly <laughs> and then after uh, I did, so I just, that was one was just an awful talk, the very first one I gave. And then I think I, I gave a lecture in a class, and that was also awful. And then I learned that I, what happens if I just, I just did it myself, just practice something over and over and over again. And I got feedback from my fellow students about what, you know, I I mostly just knew when something was awful. It was not really, that's why I, I don't know how much I need someone else to tell me when something is bad, when I, I can tell if i am making all kinds of speech errors and i'm 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 fumbling over the correct wording i i know it's awful i don't need someone else i don't want to watch this i don't want so, i don't want to record this and watch this again it's horrible and so that's why i sort of go to i, I hide <laughs> until it's ready and then people can give me feedback but by that point it's usually pretty good and i know it's pretty good and so it's it's uh you know then i guess i can i definitely can deal with Organizational comments about how I might move things around to make you know, to make the point in a slightly cleaner way in some way or other. But there's an awful lot of back. Again, it's always there's so much work for me is doing stuff on my own because I I'm too embarrassed to give a, a, a terrible talk in public. I I, I don't want to do that. I just it, I I feel it makes me feel too too terrible, <laughs> even for a practice group. You know, I don't want to do that. I want to give the impression. That I know what I'm doing, which is which means a lot of practice for me. And no, so.
1: that's really cool. And I think it's interesting because it, it does sound like over time you've developed this kind of method for to prepare yourself to give yeah. the best talk that you can give. And I think that it's it, just going from that first presentation that you just described to yeah. like where you're at now. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of uh, critical analysis and looking to solve the problems that you might have had in that better that talk so that yeah. doesn't happen again but um and i think it's interesting there's this bounce back and humility yeah. that you have to have about your own you know uh saying to yourself wow that didn't work and now i have to fix it and I have to figure out how to fix it um it's really interesting i think we're the only all right so this is like totally out of left field but yeah. i know this is my last question line of questioning but i wanted to get your thoughts on it because of the work you do um we have this week we're going to be talking about digital communication and like like how people network online and the way that they connect with each other online and i didn't know I, i feel like it's just such a weird part of um like and we get, we're seeing all this research coming up about emoticons and like like language development rapid. I've seen some papers that are about language development rapidly changing because of texting. Because like it crosses dialects used to not be able to expand as quickly, um, or or colloquialisms weren't able to. But then because of the internet. But I was wondering if you had any ideas about like digital communication and like how to think about that um, with these this. I'm not going to say younger generation, but these PhD kids, uh, PhD candidates going out into the world and having to think about how they're talking to people through the Internet.
2: I don't know if I have anything. It's fine. I'm not not really sure how to apply things I do to. So what what exactly is the topic? The topic is how how students, say graduate students, uh, interact with the world through digital media. Well, in communicate, in, in communicate, so so yeah. in, via Facebook or Twitter or or these kinds of yeah, you yeah, know yeah. this kind of. So what's the? Um, it would it be? I guess is the question
1: is would it be the same as the way you would do it in person? I mean, I, I think you what, know I don't
2: know. see I'm I'm old <laughs> <laughs> in that sense in that I don't really know. Uh, I I don't really do Facebook. I do Twitter, but Twitter's like a useful way to get a lot of information. That's why Twitter's, I find that I don't know what to do with Facebook still. And so, I mean, I know why people use it, but I don't use it for what they, you know, I just don't do, I don't know what that's, I I, I don't know. So this is like, like what I work on is like how language, like, you know, how language might develop and change. But that's different from... you know how you should present yourself to right. That's like this kind of. This is like how you present yourself to the outside world, so other people can see you. I and so I don't have. I don't no, really. I don't totally really. Fine. Yeah, I don't really know what to say. I mean, I could tell you about you know how languages change and so how words develop, and words you know shorten over time as as they get you know. Not only do they get shorter just because of their overall frequencies, but they get shorter because of their use in particular contexts. And as we you know, I guess texting is a nice you know demonstration of word word shortening we don't want to type much so as words get more predictable we type less because we have less that that's less effort for us as a speaker as long as the communicate as the receiver can understand it then we'll we'll type less and less and that's how we get all these shortenings of particular words that are used in in context uh, and so that is like how that is how language words change. That's the communication story about you know word word development. And so we've got lots of evidence that that's that's the case on, in every language that we can measure. But that's not about how you present yourself to the and and that's like those are really very. This is like.
1: Well, I think I think it is in the sense that one of the things that strikes me is what you're talking about with audience earlier, right? Yeah, like, yeah. so if you're if you're shortening, and this is what I've seen. Oh, okay. I I work with like teenagers, right? And what I see is they shorten their language exponentially with each other. They're establishing like very quickly meaning around each other, but then they're not conscious of inviting, how to invite other people into that.
2: So, So the question is that language serves multiple functions, okay? So language is a communication function, but it also serves the function of letting others know who you are, right? So it, it's, it has some social functions of not just, communi- so that you're communicating not only, you know, some predicate argument structure about some things that you're going to be doing today and what, whatever, these things, but you're letting people know by the words you use some features of yourself, okay? So what words you use and what context, you know, if you use swear words or whatever, these kinds of things will, or if you use slang terms, people will, um make generalizations about who they th- properties they think that you you may be in some way or other. And 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 some people will certainly think negatively of you for for some things that you may say in some contexts. And so you gotta be careful of that. Um, I'm not saying that's right though. I mean that 's just you know that's not I'm not advocating that. It's like hard, you know, but I but you do you should be aware that People make inferences based on what you write and what you say, you know how you talk how you write so you know if you spell things wrong, people don't like it right so you, a lot i mean not people but some people, and so that's always a problem you know if and i it's an issue if you know if you spell the word there wrong people a lot of people get so upset about it and and uh <laughs> but it, but they so the argument is you know the people will say who don't like that 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 doesn't that's failing. Communication. It's like, but it isn't. You know, it's actually completely predictable in that context. It's failing because of some sort of social conventions where that you're you're telling me when you when you don't spell that correctly that you're you don't care enough about our our conventions like of how we should spell how you should know it. It's not a problem for me knowing what you meant in that situation, but you're actually conveying to me that you you. Didn't learn enough about what the spelling conventions are in English uh, to get that right, and so then you're you are conveying to other people, which might be negative. So you, I mean, I would tend to be conservative on this and try to figure out, uh, you know, you know, follow those conventions in some ways. But but I I also I don't really like those conventions, <laughs> so <laughs> I don't think it's so bad. You know, language changes, uh, people get very upset about the strangest things. So people don't like. That we use nouns as verbs all the time, so people don 't like that you know that people who are in technical and business dial- business dialogue they get so upset that um, you know we talk about impacting this work will impact something you know because impact used to be a noun is turning to a verb, and some pe- and some people say like, well that 's not English you can 't say impact" as a verb who can talk about that that 's like really annoying well, every word started that way you don 't realize that. But the word "donate" didn't exist in the English language a hundred years ago. It actually started as a noun, as donation, and then someone started using, like, started generalizing and saying, "Hey, well, let's 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 talk about donating," and and people were very upset about donating as a verb initially. And, and this is true for many many words. And I, like the word "zoo" didn't exist, and 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 so these these were like these are words like a hundred years ago we had the same discussions about, and so eventually. I mean, I don't know. Eventually, will happen. It probably these will always happen. This this stuff will probably always happen. You'll always get older people who don't like language change, who think that the way they talk is the right way, and then younger people are messing it up. And that's how. And that's what happens. And it's like ugh, I don't think that'll ever change. I I would be surprised if if uh, older people always seem to like the things the way they were, to think that that was the right way. And uh so you should be aware of that at least. <laughs> when you're young, you should be aware. That you're going to be bothering older people <laughs> who may be hiring you, if you uh,
1: if you. Well, there's like a scalability of impact that's changed a lot too, right? Like, yes. like when you used to. Well, even texting is very different than posting yeah. something that you would text yeah. your friend on your Facebook wall, yeah, yeah. because the access to that communication can be from a lot of different. It's it, it, like. What the modern equivalent to standing on the corner in a, in a busy street was 100 years ago and yelling something profane about the president is, like, exponentially seen because back then it was only right. heard by, like, what, 50 people in that town square. And now it's being heard by anybody who cares to listen in the world. And it's on some sort of record that that exists in a different way. I mean, we didn't have... Yeah. I, I just think it's interesting because I'm like... I, This is tangential. I I, I, I get interested in this because I do see that while students have the natural, just like I did when I was in high school, have the natural impulses to create, you know, our own language and shorten the language quickly so we have an in-culture with each other. um, They're not as aware of the impact of that on all of the audience that could have access to that language.
2: Um, I think that's right. But, but, and then I, you know, just thinking about it, but I think old, you know, and the, like older people don't like it when things are changed. They like things the way they are. And so that's, you, you, you always find that, that older people like things the way they were. And so that's, you will be potentially offending people. So I, I, I was once asked about, um, apostrophes and whether those are necessary. A, a guy from Slate, uh, Slate.com wrote an article about this. And so, uh, i trying to make it remember what his name is. Matt something. Anyways, we'll we'll find nice the nice article. Very <laughs> nice article. Anyway, and uh, he, so because some guy, uh, a guy in um, oh, the British, some British, uh, some government officials of some kind were trying to get rid of apostrophes on their signs. They thought it was like we didn't. They didn't want. They wanted shorter signs, and so they thought these apostrophes were unnecessary in some way or other. And this guy, uh, somewhere in the middle of Britain, north of London, started up a society to save their apostrophe. They thought the apostrophe was like a dying. You know, written form of English communication, and he was making the claim that we couldn't communicate with each other without the apostrophe. And so, the Slate guy wrote to me and asked me if I would comment it on it. I'm like, well, that's just not true. You know, we can. You know, there's lots of ambiguity in language, and we have no trouble understanding what's meant. I'm not saying we should get rid of the apostrophe, but if we got rid of it, it would be zero problem for our writing communication system. There's like no, there's no place where you left when you left it off, you wouldn't be able to figure out what it meant, and it. Yes, it's true that the word she'll looks different from the word shell. We take out the, you know, so those but it's it's really hard to c- construct those examples. And try and find me a location where you put the word shell and you put this the 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 pair of words she will, she will she'll, where you don't know which one was intended. It's pretty hard to make up a situation such that you might be really confused. You know, and, and so they just the language is like this all the time. We have words like two. I I mean the word two to and in TWO, when we speak, I say these this is in spoken language, but in written language, too. The, words, the word TO actually has multiple meanings. There's an infinitive marker, and there's a preposition. Are you confused when I say, you know, I want to win, or he went to the store? No, you read those things or whatever, and they're, they're you say them the same way, you write them the same way, you're not bothered. Well, it wouldn't be a problem either for shiel and shell, you know. You would pick it up in the context which one was meant. But people like things the way they were. You know, so this, old, this is an older guy and he wanted to keep it. And so he likes it the way it is. I mean, it, it's not going to be a problem for communication. It would just be a new communication system, slightly tiny variant. And so this is exactly the same kind of question you're talking about. When people change the language, young people or whoever, shorten things and if everyone doesn't know about those things, they they may not like those shortenings in some way because they're used to their old things, and so they may say those are wrong, and they in- inhibit communication. They don't inhibit communication. They wouldn't, but they would. But they are different, and that there's learning involved. You'd have to learn those things, and maybe you don't want to put the time into learning these different ways to write these things because maybe you don't put you don't put you may not use those words in that way like the like these other group does, right? You're not texting. If you're not texting, why it doesn't matter to you. How 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 many characters it is right if it's three versus six characters it's not going to be a problem. Yeah. Ah yeah. Oh, yeah, commas is kind of the same pretty similar. Yeah yeah yeah. I, the, the pretty, commas, yeah yeah yeah. Like that yeah the same argument, done. same arguments yeah, yeah yeah exact same kind of argument Oxford people have very strong opinions about these things. It's funny, when you read, there's like the, the Oxford comma, and there's apostrophe, and there's the one that's just sort of crazy with this, this writing-style thing. You can you can get people going off on when you write. If you're, you're a writer, so pe- some people put two spaces after a period, for, and some people put one space. <laughs> and, and, and there's one space and two spaces, and they get so upset. And I'm like, look, this is a convention either way. It right. doesn't make any difference. It's just like, why... You, you, but people are... When so few people... They, they, they can say this is like... They really have strong opinions about this. This is kind of internet craziness. No, but but there are... But any if you go outside the internet, everyone has... What do you like? you like one space? One... Oh,
0: kind of, for me, it's one space. I, that, huh. For whatever reason, that two space... It's just not needed. My understanding of the history yeah, of it yeah. is that it was the two spaces are there from typewriters.
2: That's right. You know, yeah, that's the history of it. Yeah. But it's like... What difference does it make either way? Really? I still understand. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and the Oxford comma came oh, yeah. up
1: as a thing because yeah. of typesetting. I mean, it was uh-huh. like a uh-huh. way of uh, saving space. But in it in, can, in... It can change the... well, there are can...
2: different meanings. Yes, there are two, di- but but in the context, almost always you'll know what's intended, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is very. This is the same kind of thing. Like you can set up situations, and people do. On the internet, you you can get these situations where it's hard to know which was intended, but those are rare. It's like re- in normal conversation, normal writing. In this case, is writing, it's like we we know which was meant almost all the time, you know.
0: Does it does it matter as far as the the speed of the cognition of the intended meaning? Because if if
2: it might, I mean that that, that would depend on the reader probably, right? And so uh, you, you you know if you really do learn that there's a different meaning associated with having the comma and that. In that conjunction or not, then you probably will be a little confused by one or the other of those things. But that's a, uh, yeah. So this, I'm not. You know, there's just two different conventions, right? And and they have meaning. So conventions means there's conventional. There's a meaning associated with this form, right? You write a form, and if you have one of those then it's going to be weird for you to read the other you know if it's if the other meaning was intended and you don't have that association then it'll be slow for you for sure you know it'll it'll be confusing for
1: you well and it, it it kind of brings up this thing of scale that i was talking about like like there's an intended if if somebody cares about what you're trying to say and they don't understand the sentence they're going to try and find out what you're trying to say even if they don't yeah. get it when they're reading it yeah. but that's actually grown in. I, at least I've seen that transaction has grown in value like like it's actually really important for my audience to care enough to break through my communication barriers to get to the m- intended meaning mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. and I mean you see that with YouTube bl- bloggers and like all these people who garner like really big followings um they might try something and nobody understands what they're saying, but the audience still is like invested in finding out. Mm -hmm. Um, And then just going back to the digital communication thing, the thing I was also thinking about is is what's actually changed. The conversation has shifted because we've begun to accept that when we put things online, a lot of people can see it. Yeah. So the conversation has shifted, not like uh. around judging it, well, that's actually decreased. I've seen a lot of people be like, well, the Facebook is his personal domain, so we yeah, can judge yeah. him less for the, place, the yeah. things he says there. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So those constructs are starting to happen. Yeah, but then yeah. the worry about everybody seeing it has shifted yeah. over into a, an international, national conversation about like privacy, yeah. which has like little to do with communication, although it does impact mm-hmm. how we are afraid or not afraid to communicate in different spaces. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, that's my interview. That was an awesome interview. though.
0: This podcast was written and produced by Adam Greenfield. The executive producer of this podcast is Patrick Urich. The Great Communicators Podcast. The Great Communicators Podcast, Brad Comics Live, Brad Comics The Game, and the Technically Speaking comic book series are part of a professional development initiative called Brad X. Grad-X is, made possible by- GradX is made possible by the Office of Graduate Education at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. To find out more about GradX as well as get access to other episodes of the Great Communicators podcast, go to
2: gradx.mit.edu. Grad-X. Grad-X. For more information and links on the music used in this episode, please see the show notes.